Well, good morning, everybody. How are you doing this morning? Okay? All right. Well, why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles with me this morning to the New Testament to Matthew 28. And uh, if you don't have a Bible to use, you should find one available down in one of the chair racks around you. Matthew 28. Um, Today we're starting a new series called Miracles, uh, in which we're going to be examining some of the Uh, Some of the mysterious, out-of-the-ordinary, hard-to-comprehend things that God has done in our world and in the lives of His people. And uh, as many of you may know, both Old and New Testaments are replete with accounts of the miraculous taking place. Um, You know, could they really have happened? And if so, um, why did they happen? And do similar things happen today? And what does it all mean to us and for us? So we're going to be talking about those things. I'm excited about... Uh, sharing what I'm learning, and really it is a learning process for me as well. So uh, I think it's going to be fun. But uh, before we move forward in looking at specific biblical events, I figured we should start with an overview, sort of a, a theology of, of miracles, if you will, the idea of which, uh, frankly, is a bit daunting because, I mean, really, how can I reasonably explain the unexplainable to you and do it in 25 minutes or less? I mean, that's a, that's a pretty big challenge. So here's a disclaimer. I am not going to be able to uh, fully answer all of your questions um, about miracles. Not today and probably never because there, there, is, there is mystery in God himself and therefore there is mystery in the miraculous. So as much as I would like to do it, I cannot explain it all to you, but what I might be able to do is uh, set a rational and theological foundation that can help us better recognize and understand miracles as well as gain some practical insight on their significance, okay? So with that being, with that being the goal, uh, let's start with uh, some basics. Uh, what is a miracle? And while that may sound like an easy enough question to answer, it's actually quite complicated because within our culture, our own culture culture alone, there are varying definitions of that word in play. Uh, For example, a very common definition of the word miracle is that a miracle is anything that happens out of the ordinary that's hard to explain. And that's sort of our adopted everyday version of the word, isn't it? I mean, you think about how people talk about miracles all the time, Um, it kind of makes sense. We say things like, you know, um, my son and daughter uh, cleaned their rooms this morning. I didn't ask them to do it, and they didn't fight about it. I mean, it was a a miracle. Uh, Or, you know, my car stalled on I-88, and uh, after I kicked it a few times and prayed a little, it started. It was a miracle. Um, I lost my contact lens on, on the beach downtown near the lake. A stranger walked by and found it. It was a miracle. The guy was an angel which is a whole other topic for another day. Uh, If the Cubs win the World Series, it will be a miracle, which I think is arguably true. But I I think you you see what I'm getting at, right? We we have overused, and as a result, we have watered down the meaning of the word, which isn't particularly helpful for our discussion. Uh, But another common definition would be the more broad secular definition, which says that a miracle is a supernatural violation of the laws of nature, which at first sounds good until you begin to realize that there's an entire worldview uh, locked up in that description, a worldview heavily influenced by the Enlightenment movement dating back to the 18th century. 
Because essentially, this definition assumes a dualism. Um, in other words, the presence of two worlds, an observable, physical, natural world, and a hidden, spiritual, unnatural world. And when the spiritual, unnatural world uh, invades and violates the physical, natural one, then you have a miracle. Uh, of course, philosophical naturalists and materialists and secularists flat out deny any spiritual dimension exists at all, and yet their definition still involves this hypothetical incursion into our natural world by something extraneous to it. The implication being that, you know, of course, of course science and the laws of nature prove that no such thing is possible. Miracles just, they just don't happen. And so how one defines a miracle is pretty important. Uh, in his book, The Language of God, physician, geneticist, uh, the director of our National Institute of Health, former atheist turned Christian, Dr. Francis Collins puts it this way. He says, the only thing that will kill the possibility of miracles more quickly than a committed materialism is the claiming of miracle status for everyday events uh, for which natural explanations are readily at hand. And he's right. But here's an interesting thing. Many religious people, even many people within the church, think of miracles, or at least the possibility of them, in the same way as secularists, in terms of, of, of these two worlds colliding, you know, with supernatural with deity kind of breaking in and violating the natural order to achieve uh, some astonishing uh, outcome. But what's critical for us to understand is that the writers of Scripture didn't think this way. They didn't think dualistically. From their perspective, there are not two worlds, only one. Only one, and God is the, the sole creator and sustainer of that world. And therefore, anything that happens in it, uh, from the rising of the sun in the morning to, to the gift of life itself, represents the power of God at work. In other words, God is active in his world, and therefore in our lives, all the time, 24-7. And as a result of that perspective, both the ancient Israelites and early Christians thought of miracles not, not as invasions or violations of our world by another world, but as, but as, unique, as unique demonstrations of God's power within his own creation. Okay, so it's a, it's, a, it's a subtle difference, but it's a significant one because it helps narrow down the, the biblical definition of a miracle. And so here's my best attempt at that. Uh, in the strictest sense of the word in Scripture, a, a miracle uh, is an astonishing event that occurs when the power of God transcends what is normally perceived as natural law and cannot possibly be explained upon any known natural basis. Uh, it's the... Um, it's the, bur uh, it's, the, it's the bush that burns without being consumed. It's, it's the parting of a sea wh where people can walk through. It's the sun standing still. It's a virgin conceiving a child. It's a, it's a dead person coming back to life. I mean, look, we all recognize um, that our world uh, is mostly predictable, right? I mean, there, the events I just mentioned uh, don't normally happen. You know, we can agree, I think, that the universe around us is governed by certain um, laws of time, space, um, cause and effect, uh, inertia, thermodynamics, genetics, and all these natural laws are good. They're helpful. 
Um, I mean, imagine if every now and then the law of gravity was suspended. You know, at worst, we'd fly off the planet. At best, we'd dunk a basketball with little effort or change the light bulbs in this room without a lift. But gravity is constant. And our universe, with all of its planets and stars and galaxies, is always contained and always in order. What about inertia? What if an object at rest didn't necessarily stay at rest? Your cars could be sliding around the parking lot at this moment. You know, guitars could be flying off the stage. What if two plus two equals five? I mean, it would be a crazy, uncontrolled, and uninhabitable world. But thankfully, that's not the way it is. That's not the way things are, because the universe is governed by natural laws. But that doesn't mean there is no God, or that God is uninvolved. It just means that God created this world that is organized and sustained by laws of nature, which are simply our, our best human descriptions of what normally happens. Dr. John Lennox is a respected scientist and professor of mathematics at Oxford University in England. He's also a Christian. And in his book, God's Undertaker, explains it this way. He says, by themselves, the laws of nature cannot rule out the possibility of the miraculous. When a miracle takes place, it's our very knowledge of the laws of nature that alerts us to the fact that it is indeed a miracle. It's important to grasp that Christians do not deny the laws of nature. Quite the contrary. And so the laws of nature exist. They're real, they're good, they're helpful, and they predict what's bound to occur if God uh, does not uniquely do otherwise. But sometimes, sometimes God chooses to do otherwise, to do the miraculous. And so the second question is, do you believe that? Do you believe in miracles? Now, just so you know, our word miracle comes from a Latin term, miraculum, uh, literally meaning the object of wonder, And we use the word miracle because, and when translation oftentimes, because there's really no one biblical term that that encapsulates all of it. I mean, um, there's no one Greek or Hebrew term to use. The scripture uses a number of words. It speaks of signs and wonders and, and power, all terms used to carry the idea of something incredible happening that signals the presence of an invisible reality that is part of our everyday world. But, you know, back to the question, do you believe that? Do you believe in miracles? Well, ultimately, your answer is formed by your worldview. You see, if you believe that God created all that we see and know, then it's only rational to believe that miracles are possible. You know, events can occur. God can do things as creator that we can't fully explain. If you don't believe in God, then there are no such things as miracles, Case closed, no need for discussion. So really, the issue comes down to what you believe about God. Is he real? Is is he not? And uh, according to recent statistics, over 90% of Americans today believe God exists. And yet only 80% of them believe in miracles. That's an interesting statistic. And here's the deal. I'm not going to criticize anybody for that. I'm not going to criticize or be dismissive of anyone who has doubts or who struggles with the idea of God's power uniquely intervening in the natural order. Because let's face it, I mean, miracles are hard to believe in. And they should be, frankly. I mean, get this. Here in Matthew 28, a very famous text of Scripture, there's a little phrase that was often overlooked. We miss it. 
But uh, in Matthew 28, verse 17, we're told how the apostles met with the risen Jesus on a mountainside in Galilee. And then Matthew, who was there, says this. When they saw him, they worshipped him. And then this phrase, but some doubted. You ever noticed that before? Some doubted. That's a remarkable admission. Here's the author of an early Christian document reporting that some of the first and most committed followers of Jesus struggled to believe in the miracle of his resurrection even while seeing Jesus with their own eyes and touching, them, touching him with their own hands. And in, it makes no sense for Matthew to put this in his biography to share this detail unless it's true, unless it actually happened. And so for me, this, this simple text reveals a couple of important things. First, it reveals that the try and suggest Christianity was born in a pre-scientific, ignorant, and gullible world is fallacious. It's wrong. It's false. I mean, understand, by the first century, by Jesus' time, the famed Greek uh, physician Hippocrates had been dead 500 years. The guy was absolutely brilliant. He's still known today as the father of modern medicine. He, he established the whole scientific method, and today most graduating medical students take what they call the Hippocratic Oath. It's a vow of commitment to ethics in si- the science of medicine. Some of Hippocrates' writings were used as textbooks in medical schools well into, mid, uh, into the mid-19th century. Many of his observations about diseases and um, treatments of diseases are still respected and valid today. Luke, uh, author of two New Testament books, was a Greek doctor educated in the tradition uh, of Hippocrates. So here's my point. People in the ancient world, Greco-Roman, uh, Middle Eastern world, weren't just a bunch of blunt-minded, ignorant bumpkins predisposed to believing any miraculous claim or story that came their way, however absurd it might be. On the contrary, they were bright, intelligent men and women who were keen observers of the human experience. And uh, Matthew's admission here, I think, warns us not to think that we modern scientific people have to struggle with the idea of the miraculous while ancient, more primitive people did not. They did. The followers of Jesus responded like any other group of modern people. Some believed the miraculous, some doubted. And so it tells me that it's okay to struggle with doubt. It's all right. All the apostles ended up as leaders in the church, even though a few of them, initially at least, had more trouble believing than the rest. But perhaps the most instructive thing in this particular text is what Matthew reveals about the reason for miracles and how they lead us not only to cognitive belief, but to worship and to awe and to wonder. Miracles in the Old and New Testament and Jesus' miracles in particular, weren't, weren't clever magic tricks designed to impress and coerce people. Neither were they random supernatural acts of a capricious deity who had nothing better to do because he was bored than to just show off. Whenever God chooses to do what we consider miraculous, it's always done with purpose. To teach truth, to, to validate God's reality, to execute his will in his world, and ultimately to lead us and others to worship him with awe and reverence. In the Old Testament, the psalmist summarizes it this, summarizes it this way. The psalmist writes, you are the God who performs miracles. The Hebrew word there means wonders, unexplainable things. He says, you display your power among the peoples. But what kind of wonders, what kind of power, what kind of unexplainable things are we talking about? Well, 
When you examine the miracles recorded in Scripture, what you find is that they, they fall into several categories. There are miracles that involve um, a temporary and localized suspension of natural law, uh, the parting of the Red Sea, Jesus um, claiming a, a, a calming a ferocious storm, uh, walking on the surface of a lake. Uh, there are miracles involving the immediate healing of a person's physical uh, body and their mind. The blind were made to see, the lame were made to walk. Immediately it happened. There are miracles demonstrating divine power over death. Lazarus, Jesus' friend, dead four days, raised to life. And of course, the resurrection of Jesus himself. It's the foundation of Christian faith. Some miracles in the New Testament had to do with the expulsion of demonic spirits that had possessed and tormented human beings. There are Miracles that manipulate material things, water turned into wine, uh, the multiplication of, of, of a few loaves of bread and some fish to feed 5,000 people. And then there were miracles involving the plant and animal kingdom. Balaam's donkey in the Old Testament speaks. A fig tree is destroyed with a simple word. And what's interesting about all the miracles is that no matter the category uh, that they fall into, they all share certain characteristics. Uh, for example, uh, they were all demonstrable, undeniable facts. Men, women, children, the young, the old, rich, poor, Jew, Gentile, all experienced and, and experienced these things, or experienced and authenticated these things, that is. Uh, nowhere in Scripture is there ever a spokesperson uh, put in place to argue the veracity of these events. Either they happened or they didn't. I mean, even... For example, even, even the enemies of Jesus couldn't and therefore wouldn't deny his miraculous work. They simply tried to attribute his power to a much darker source. Persecutors of the early church never negated the miracles occurring in and around the apostles Peter, John, and Paul. Instead, they attempted to stifle the, the impact those events had with threats of violence and, and even death. In Scripture, uh, miracles always had and have a, a worthy and redemptive motive. Signs, wonders, powers were never done for personal aggrandizement. And although Jesus' um, miracles did confirm his claim to deity, they were more about demonstrating the power and the love and the grace of God who himself had come to rescue humanity. The incarnation itself is a miracle. Miracles were never done by those attempting to enhance their own financial status. And as a general rule, miracles occurred in the presence of a lot of credible witnesses, including, mind you, hostile observers. They weren't slow, progressive processes. Rather, they had instantaneous effects. The blind were given immediate sight. Uh, leprosy was immediately uh, cured. And, and therefore, these miracles were all subject to human sense perception. In other words, the walls of Jericho were seen crumbling to the ground. Um, a withered, crippled hand was, was, was seen to be immediately restored. Balaam's donkey was heard talking. The water turned to wine could be tasted. It was the best wine they had tasted all day. Thomas could touch and feel the nail wounds of his resurrected Lord. In addition, all of these miracles were independent of secondary causes. In other words, there was no, no natural way to explain them. And as a result, miracles generated more than just a superficial temporary interest. They had significant impact 
In the New Testament, miracles were intended to authenticate the, the, the message of the good news of God's love and grace and forgiveness that, that was being proclaimed. And here's the reality. Signs, wonders, divine power, unexplainable things, i.e. miracles, were never, never intended to be mere benefits and blessings in the lives of select people. Which brings us to a couple of you know, personal, uh, practical, and somewhat sensitive and even complicated questions. The first and most obvious is this. Does God still do miracles today? And to be honest, I, I, there's a part of me that hesitates offering an answer to the question only because, I mean, who am I to speak for God? But for what it's worth, here's my opinion. God, creator and sustainer of this world, can do whatever he wants with whomever he wants, whenever he wants, for any reason he wants. And so I'd have to say yes, you know, God can and still does the miraculous in our world today. But here's the caveat. I'm convinced that true, undeniable, verifiable miracles in the strictest biblical sense are rare. See, sometimes our tendency is to read Scripture and want to normalize the miraculous because, I mean, let's face it, there seems to be an awful lot of people, a lot of unexplainable, extraordinary, supernatural things happening in the lives of a lot of people. And so it's easy to forget that Genesis to Revelation offers only a concise record of, of thousands of years of human history involving billions of individuals, men, women, families, cultures, and, and while it may seem in our reading that miracles were happening all the time, everywhere, all over the place, they weren't. Even in Jesus' three-year ministry, that was very localized, uh, uh, where there was indeed an increased frequency, frequency of miracles. Still, not everybody saw one, not everyone experienced one. They occurred at specific times, specific locations, for specific reasons. A well-known Christian author and thinker, and late Oxford professor C.S. Lewis, in his book, Miracles, explains, uh, I think quite well, the rarity of miracles. He puts it this way. He says, you are probably quite right in thinking you will never see a true miracle done. You are probably equally right in thinking that there was a natural explanation of anything in your past life which seemed, at the first glance, to be rum or odd. God doesn't shake miracles into nature at random as if from a pepper caster. They come on great occasions. They are found at the great ganglions of history, not political or social history, but of that spiritual history which cannot be fully known by men. If your own life doesn't happen to be near one of those great ganglions, how should you expect to see one? If we were heroic missionaries, apostles, or martyrs, it would be a different matter. But why you or I? Unless you live near a railway, you will not see trains go past your windows. How likely is it that you or I will be present when a peace treaty is signed, when a great scientific discovery is made, when a dictator commits suicide? That we should see a true miracle is even less likely. Nor, if we understand, shall we be anxious to do so. Nothing almost sees miracles but misery. Miracles and martyrdoms tend to bunch about the same areas of history, areas we have naturally no wish to frequent. Now, as much as I want to do otherwise, I have to admit, I, Lewis is correct. 
I mean, the possibility, for example, of me personally experiencing or witnessing a true, verifiable, undeniable, undeniable uh, miracle of God is minimal at best. And again, that's not to say it can't happen, but it's completely up to God and his purposes, which I don't pretend to fully understand. Uh, a few weeks ago, I was sitting around a table with uh, a, a couple of guys that uh, I get together with almost every week uh, just to talk about life and, and the good, the bad, the ugly, and all of it. And we were together, we were sitting around this table, and I mentioned that the series was coming up, and I was going to be teaching on this topic. And one of, one of my friends grabs a napkin, and he starts, he starts jotting down questions on this napkin, um, most of which I've tried to address in this overview. Some we'll deal with later, but, but one of the last questions he, he writes down on this napkin, which I kept, by the way, uh, caused me to do a lot of praying, a lot of thinking, a lot of studying, a lot of praying. <laughs> uh, and it's one that all of you might ask in the midst of life's confusion, uh, disappointment, pain, suffering, and uncertainty. And it's the question, does God have a miracle for me? It's an understandable and very reasonable question for anybody who's facing some of the worst that life has to offer, seemingly insurmountable odds of uh, financial bankruptcy or the hopelessness of a destroyed relationship or marriage or the, the challenges of, of a physical or mental disability or, or a fight against disease and terminal illness. Whatever the crisis, in those moments, we'd like to know might God do something miraculous for me? And if that's what you're wondering this morning because of your circumstance, the best I can say is maybe. Maybe he will. But I'm also compelled to point out that for us to ask, does God have a miracle for me, is in some ways the wrong question. Because to really understand miracles is to recognize that they are never intended to serve us first and foremost. I mean, sure, as human beings, we might reap the secondary benefits of a miracle, but ultimately, every true miraculous work of God is meant to benefit him, to affirm his power, to achieve his divine purposes, to add to his glory, to lead us and others to worship him in awe and reverence and to trust him. You, you follow what I'm saying? I mean, look, none of us can can earn a miracle or manipulate God to do one for us. They don't, they don't depend on us using the right words or living a pure enough life or, 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 or being good enough or thinking correct thoughts or praying with precise formulas or techniques. It's not how it works. And please, again, don't get me wrong here. I mean, I'm not saying God may or may not work in your life in powerful, even unusual ways. I mean, the fact is, and what I really want us to understand here, that is that as creator and sustainer, God is active in his world and therefore in our lives all the time, 24-7. Every day that we're alive is a demonstration of God's mercy and God's grace. He is always guiding, he is always protecting, he's always providing, always sustaining, always restoring, always strengthening, always helping, always healing. The psalmist in the Old Testament sings, we wait in hope for the Lord, he is our help. King David writes, surely God is my help, the Lord is the one who sustains me. 
every day. With that in mind, let me just say something about healing. Uh, I believe God does heal, and indeed God can heal people from the most serious of diseases. And he can do it through medical treatment or through natural internal processes that we may not be able to identify or completely explain. And as wonderful as that is when it happens, it may not be a miracle in its most narrow definition. Um, when write, interesting, when writing the early church, the Apostle Paul actually differentiates between miracles and, he says, the gifts of healings. So while healing can be miraculous, a withered hand immediately restored, leprosy immediately cleared, the blind immediately see, while healing can be miraculous, there's also gifts of healings. In other words, God will bring about healing in a person's life in a way that we may not be able to fully explain, but there could be some explanation to it naturally. Are you following me on that? In other words, let me give you my Reiki translation. Uh, miracles or not, God is involved in healings one way or the other. So here's the deal. Although I think true miracles are indeed rare, God may do one in your life. And if he does, you will no doubt be the benefit. You are the beneficiary of it. But make no mistake, you know, ultimately that miracle, as all true ones are, that miracle is meant for God's glory first and foremost. Now, uh, as we... As we bring this overview to a conclusion, I hope it hasn't left you more confused than you may have been 20 minutes ago. Okay, hopefully it's been helpful. And I would just say, if, if, if so, stick with me. I think, I, I'm confident actually that as we continue in the study together, we'll gain a deeper and fuller uh, uh, grasp and understanding of what miracles are all about. But hey, here's the thing, man. We, we're never going to be able to clear up all the questions. That's just not going to happen. As the Old Testament book of Job says, can you fathom all the mysteries of God? Can you probe the limits of the Almighty? I can't. There, there are always going to be things about God that will remain a mystery to us. And to a great degree, miracles are one of them. But here's what we know for sure. And here, hopefully, is the takeaway this morning for you. That as creator and sustainer of all things, God is always, always powerfully at work in his world and in our lives in one way or another. Always. And so he remains today our help in the good times and in the bad. Let's pray together, shall we? Our Father, who are we as finite human beings to, to even suggest that we can know you fully? Who are we as the creatures to suggest we can define the creator? Who are we as pots to say to the potter, we know you, why do you do this? Why do you do that? Who are we to question you? And so we humbly admit and acknowledge this morning that, that um, we know enough about you to know that you love us, that you've created us, and that you've offered to us life everlasting, and that you are gracious because you have revealed those things 
in and through your son Jesus. And um, in many respects, that's as much as we really need to know. Even in those moments when we desperately want more information of what's happening and why, and when we feel that we desperately need a miracle. In those moments, I pray that as your people, we would, we would trust you. And uh, we would acknowledge that you are always at work. And sometimes we just don't know exactly uh, the why of life. But uh, you are always at work in the world that you have created. And um, you're always with us. Always loving. Always gracious. Always protecting. Always guiding. And so we, we want to acknowledge our love for you this morning as our creator. We offer this in Jesus' name. Amen.